ready, Tyler? Yep. Okay. Howdy, folks, and welcome to Basic Business Advice. This morning, I've got Ken Hostetler, Tyler Needing filling in for Jordan Stoltz Foods, yep. and Kevin West. Kevin, uh, we're going to hear about your story here for a moment, but we want our listeners to know, if you catch this podcast before November, we have our GAP conference coming up in November. Kevin's actually going to be a speaker at that. I will myself. Tyler's going to be there organizing and mixing sounds. Ken's just going to be there and you can shake his hand. Uh, there we go. <laughs> and so uh, we have our GAP conference coming up. If you are interested in that, go to equus.law slash tickets. So today, Kevin, we're going to talk about you and wow. talk about some of the things you're the best at. But your story of how you ended up where you are now with Invisible Insights, coaching and leading, traveling across the country and speaking is fascinating. Could you you know, give us from start to now how you got here. Wow, I mean, it it the 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 whole like framework of invisible insights kind of started uh, when I was uh, working in uh, ministry in a nonprofit and leading volunteers was incredibly challenging. Um, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Mm-hmm. You know, because what you're doing is you're getting people to to work for free. And and uh, and give part of their time and uh, attention and energy to something bigger than themselves, and the concept of vision casting and the concept of how to inspire and uh, and you know I used to use a framework where you know I always wanted to uh, you know recruit, train, motivate, inspire, and retain volunteers. How do I build that structure out? And what I started realizing over time is there were a lot of invisible principles. To that there were lots of things that didn't show up on the surface mm-hmm. that were really critical to the success of volunteers feeling empowered and and able to really step up and make a difference uh, and and leave a legacy not just in for an organization but in the lives of the people that they lead. So the journey of those invisibles started becoming more pattern recognition kinds of things when I started studying ultra successful people mm-hmm. when I started looking at you know, reading books like Good to Great. And I started bumping into, you know, these these uh, incredible people out there who are rocking the free world, you know, in, in the business side of things. And I went, oh, wow, these are transferable principles. So, but why isn't that no one sees them? You know, what is that, you know, what, what's holding people back? And so the journey for me began the process of reverse engineering, a whole lot of success stories uh, and interviewing a number of people mm-hmm. along the way, you know, just kind of, you know, uh, reaching out and finding that people were incredibly accessible, uh, much more than you would think. And that, uh, you know, spending 20 minutes on a phone call to just ask them, you know, what their story and how they, uh, you know, how they got there really revealed a lot of really cool and deep things. So in, in, in turn of that, then I started realizing that, hey, you know what, organizations, individuals, uh, leaders, no matter where you're at in an organization, has incredible you know potential that's often unleveraged and unrealized. Mm-hmm. So that began the mission. That's where Invisible Insights came in because I started calling them invisibles. Hey, here's an invisible for this. Here's an invisible for that. And then it started realizing, you know, it's kind of like one of those things when you feel like you got something everybody needs to have or mm-hmm. needs to find out. I, I thought, man, I can teach people to see. And if I can teach people to see, then their potential becomes limitless because you know, they'll, they'll, they'll play chess and not checkers. You know, they'll, they'll do things and they'll leverage areas of their lives that they they're dormant and, you know, and just not even uh, it's an afterthought for them. So 
if I could get them to see it and then it, and it affect the way that they plan and behave and process and do all those things, well then, then, you know, Hey, the world would be a better place, sure. you know, for that. So um, that's kind of where it kind of started in a sense. I, I, two things. One, uh, when I was traveling more around our firm's region, uh, I would stumble across you from time to time in Starbucks yeah. over in New Philly Dover area. <laughs> and I'd go through and get my Starbucks and there's Kevin. And we'd talk for a little bit. It, it eventually became a thing that I was like, I'm going to stop at Starbucks when I'm headed in that direction, just in case <laughs> I see Kevin. Because yeah. inevitably you would just have gotten off some phone call or some yep. conference yeah. and you were like, I just talked to this guy. And I just talked to this lady and they're amazing. Let me tell you. And you just get this like five minute download of all these people that you talk to and how awesome it was. Um, super thrilled to have you in this space because the energy Absolutely. you bring is awesome to have in this space. But be, before the volunteer aspect of things and the lessons you were learning there, you were actually in talent recruiting before that. Yeah, yeah, we had, uh, you talk about back in yep. Detroit. Back in the day. Back in the day, um, I had started a basketball scouting service called uh, Basketball Unlimited, and we had a, a publication called the Motor City Roundball Review. Nice. And so what we did is we um, basically, uh, we would, during the dead period, NCAA dead period, coaches cannot recruit off campus. Mm -hmm. So what we focused on was going to all the top camps and, um, and be in and, and stat out different players uh, and, and do comparisons and then facts to the colleges, those particular players uh, and how they went head to head. And we had a very unique um, method of doing it uh, was uh, was generated by a guy named Will Robinson, who's a director of scouting for the Detroit Pistons when I worked there. So um, Will's basically his process was he uh, charted touches when a player touched the ball, he charted what they did with the ball and, and, our whole process of me talking to him about that was how do you find a Dennis Rodman and how do you find a Joe Dumars who basically were unheard? You know, you didn't really know who they were back then. And, and you got to remember this is the eighties. So the whole idea of media and what we have access to today was so different than, I mean, we were using fax machines. Yeah. So I was about to <laughs> you say, I was like, I mean? you said you were faxing people. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Tyler probably doesn't know what that is. I know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> But that's the, that was the game. And then we realized that uh, that way of doing it took all the drama. A lot of the other scouting reports were more drama-based, you know, who's saying who to what and who's mom and who's dad and uncle and all that other weird stuff and the AU coaches. We simply went statistical and said, hey, when this player matched up against this player, mm. here are the patterns, and you can identify strengths and weaknesses based on this. And so it gave coaches a different point of view it was definitely a, a differential advantage for us so we grew really quick yeah and uh, and so that was kind of you know looking at talent just wasn't just you know that part of it uh, of uh, the personality side but also the play right. side. and so this that does seem to be connected from finding talent and measuring it and looking for the ways to call it out and identify where it needs to go oh, yeah. to working with volunteers which undoubtedly, that is one of the most challenging areas to work with people who don't have to be there. You're not paying them to be there. They're just there because they believe in what you're trying to do. Absolutely. And so, and now two invisible insights. So 
you you touched on it a little bit, you know, these principles, these ideas. What is the purpose, though, of Invisible Insights? Well, and let me go back a little bit because maybe this story will help with this. Um, at the time, uh, during the, the scouting service days, and, and it's kind of funny because you always tie your past back into the learnings that you have currently. And, uh, and if you do that in a positive way, obviously, there are sometimes forms of regret that live in that world. But if you look at it through the lens of, hey, you know, th- these were like, aha moments. Mm-hmm. Um, we had scouted a, a kid at Detroit Northern named Lorenzo Neely. And he was a really good point guard. He ended up going to Eastern Michigan and, and helped guide them to the Sweet 16. But the but he played on it. Uh, the star of the team was Derek Coleman. And uh, Derek Coleman ended up being uh, going to Syracuse and was the number one draft pick. So I go in the hot gym. It's July. I go in a hot gym and Derek Coleman is doing a ball handling workout in there with a long full length wintered coat on with mittens on his hands and, and, and snow boots and doing a whole complete workout, you know, and probably that gym had to be 85, 95, Mm -hmm. you know, degrees in there. It was hot. And, uh, and I just watched him work out. It was amazing. The workout, I mean, the effort that he put into doing this. And so he came over and he's done just dripping. Everything was wet. And, and, uh, he sat down I go, DC, I go, what are you doing? Like, what is this? And he pulls these winter gloves off and literally, I mean, you could see the water. It's like, you know, you could wring them out and he sits down and he goes, if I can do all my workouts with all this stuff on, wait, do you see what I can do without it? <laughs> and I went like, oh, and, and to me, that was unconventional. It, it inspired uh, uh, what, what we ended up doing a basketball camp because of that alone called rat camp, what was called radical approach to teaching skills. And what we did is we did a lot of those weird kind of, you know, things that no one would do, yeah. you know, in order to do that. And, and I realized that, that going forward, you know, from an invisible standpoint, you know, and bringing that full circle, a, a lot of the successful people find unconventional ways they take risks. They do things. They're willing to to fail, and and you know you know fail. You know fear gets really loud when you want to do something that matters, but yet everybody has something in us, you know that if we don't do it, it won't get done, and so we have to push through that somehow and get to that place. And so the, the whole f- full circle of invisible insights is just that. It's it's like wow, you know here's a guy who. Could you know? I don't know what people said to him when he walked in the gym with a coat on and boots, and you know, either way, it didn't dissuade him from doing what needed to be done for him to be a number one draft pick of the draft. So that's the part where I look at that and go, "All right, so what does that look like for anybody? What does that look for for John or Bill or Susan? You know, and and those are the things that I, I get inspired with because I think people's potential is incredible." It's just, it just needs to be inspired and activated. I have so many questions, but Tyler, I want to come to you because you've actually sat under Kevin in those volunteer environments. Uh, talk, talk about that a little bit. Oh man. Um, there was a time Well, I said, I would still do be, be this way, but I for sure would run through a wall for Kevin because I always felt valued for like the longest time. If I was, a, if it was a volunteer, I felt valued as a friend and like, colleague i feel valued um and because of that i would run through a wall for him but there was also a time where if i ran into him at starbucks like you do 
there was a time where I would walk in and be like, shoot. Cause I knew Kevin was about to ruin my day with some sort of, <laughs> some sort of knowledge that he just heard from a phone call or something he was about to tell me. And I say ruin my day in the best way possible. Yeah. It was always like a, a pivot for me and you were always able to, it was always a time in my life where I needed that. I would run into you even after I was a volunteer mm-hmm. and I was running a business. I would run into you at Starbucks and be like, shoot, something's about to change in my life. And when I, you, I'd walk over and you'd say, what are you working on? I'd close whatever I was working on and we'd talk for, you know, half hour or whatever. And you'd say, all right, well, I got to go. And you get up and leave. I'm like, shoot, I've got so many things I need to change <laughs> about the way I'm running my business and life, I guess, you know, at, at times. But, um, yeah, I always had takeaways. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> Those are fun. Those are fun days. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they were all whippersnappers. Yeah. And, and my, my whole theory of whippersnappers is you got to learn how to shake the tree, uh-huh. you know, and sometimes you got to, you know, I want whippersnappers to feel comfortable challenging the process. So if you shake their tree enough, they learn how to shake that tree other places. Yep. And if I can get them shaking the tree and something shakes out of that, that, you know, can make a difference for them. And their end, you know, from that skill set, then that's a that's a huge win. That's a legacy win. Sure, sure. Ken, you got anything you want to run jump in here with? Yeah. So I I'd love to hear a little bit about how you're taking some of these uh, insights and some of the you know obviously you're great at casting a vision and getting business leaders to to buy into that. I'd love to hear kind of what your approach is and how we get people to actually make meaningful change. You mm-hmm. know, get into that kind of next step. It's one thing to have a thought, Hey, we're going to do this. or we have a vision. How do we get there? Yeah. I think it's a a little bit about how you manage your dissatisfactions. And most of the time um, we have a bad relationship with our dissatisfactions. Our dissatisfactions usually um, they they want to lead us backwards. They want to lead us to regret. They want us to, to uh, play in the land of what if this was different or what if that or blame or complain or defend all those things. And essentially it's really about flipping it. You have to look and be intimate with your dissatisfaction through the lens of what you're going to do next. And it's, it's taking that energy that could be sucked from you going in one direction and leveraging it to go another. And I think that's the part where um, it's a skill. I mean, it really is because you've got to be able to turn off the noise and you've got to be able to shut it down. And so um, journaling is a big part of that. You know, the, the more that you can be intimate with your issues, the more that you can state your problems thoroughly and clearly, it's going to give you a level of clarity to, to determine what action needs to be taken. But even then, you still have to make moves. You have to make a first move. You got to get dirty somewhere in there. And if you'll just get dirty, you'll be shocked at what happens on the other side when you get to move two and move three. Chris is a great example of that because Chris has these, I'm willing to bet a lot of the visions of what Chris started, started in some level of a dissatisfaction. And then it transitioned into what do I need to do? But it's still, even then it's not good enough until you make your first move. And those require risk and uncertainty and incompetence. There's a level of thrashing that goes in that you've got to embrace that. And, uh, and so if you can navigate that well and you can manage that uncertainty well, that's a huge skill set. And I think it, when I look at emerging leaders, that's definitely something that, you know, everybody has to get better at. And if anything that COVID has taught us is that we have to, you know, be able to do that because we're going to live in a world of uncertainty for some time. 
you know, I, I think we're all kind of now in that. And nine eleven did that to us too, right? Sure. You sure. know, we we experienced certain kinds of things, and now we have to figure out how we're going to manage it, where we're going to go. Yeah, I love that. And I, you know, I think one of the things that you said about journaling and that type of thing. How does accountability and the ability to motivate people to 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 take that step? You know, that's mm-hmm. that's always the difficult thing. I love what you're saying. You got to get in there. It's uncomfortable. We got to make it happen, but. Do you have any tips on how you how you get people to, to dive into that? Yeah, well, here's the thing. I mean, accountability exists only when there's agreement. So there are certain conversations you need to have with yourself and agreements you need to have with yourself in order to be able to have the level of accountability to do what you need to do. And a lot of people don't want to do that. They just want to go and say, hey, I'm, and some people would say making a deal with yourself or whatever that, but part of the journaling aspect is simply clarifying, hey, these are the outcomes I want to create in my life. I want to be ridiculously clear about what I want. And I'm telling you, as a coach, a lot of times getting people to tell you what they want is the hardest thing to get them to say because of all the fear that's wrapped around it, you know, and that fear doesn't live in the land of failure or anything. It, it really, the biggest fear that people have is the fear of responsibility. Cause if I say this out loud and it doesn't work, I'm going to be judged. Mm, and we create sure. all these weird kind of internal conversations that mess with us and derail us. And dude, the worst this is going to be is a story to tell. Like that's it. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and the beautiful place is if it's in your journal, it lives. You can go back and relive all those moments when you go back and read through them is powerful on that. So yeah, the accountability part really just comes through that whole idea of doing the hard work of clarifying what you want. Yeah. And I I feel like that's the big motivator. I get tactically. It's hard sometimes to make yourself do it, but cause I don't do it every day. Sure. I mean, everybody, you you listen to these dudes online and they make it sound like they, you know, I'm so dialed in. I think they, I think we all struggle. Mm -hmm. Sure. We win and we lose all the time. Sure. On that end. So one of the things actually Tyler said, and then you led into it there a little bit in answer to Ken's question, is a topic that I enjoy hearing you talk about. The idea of pivoting, mm. the idea of the next. What what do you do from where you are? And you said that comes from a point of dissatisfaction, but it also comes with a bit of courage. You said yeah. you have to be willing to be incompetent at something. Yeah. You have to be willing to go through the slog. You have to be willing to risk. What do you see when you talk to somebody who's stuck that is preventing them from pivoting? That what is the thing that you see most often with that? It, it, you know, the, the the self-talk piece of it. So there, there's a cycle that we go through. So when we have a focus, and let's say the focus is a negative focus. Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of times when I'm working with someone who's stuck, I'm going, okay, let's take a look at what you're focusing on right now. And we unpack the focuses because focuses always lead to self-talk and self-talk always leads to feelings. Feelings then determine action. So if I'm not feeling it, I, I have to, you know, I have to go back and go, okay, so what feel, if I have feelings of, of pain, if I have ser- feelings of fear, if I have feelings of insecurity, I'm going back to what are you saying to yourself about yourself? Cause that's the game. That is the real game. So then at that point, I got to go back to the focus. Mm-hmm. Well, where did the, where, what started the self-talk? The biggest thing that, that I try to do with my clients is interrupt the pattern. I want them to go to focus to action. I want to be able to, I want the action to be the first thing you do that drives the feelings. 
So when we sit down and go, hey, you know, hey, I feel stuck. I feel stuck. Great. Let's take the focuses that are causing this. And then let's take a look at the actions or the moves that we need to be making that all of a sudden impact the feelings. When the feelings are impacted by the moves you've made, now the self-talk changes. Mm-hmm. And now you're going, hey, I think I can do this. Hey, I think, you know, I'm growing in confidence here. And, and all confidence is, is bringing your best self to a situation and believing that you can figure it out. That's what, that's what confidence is. So, so the whole idea of I'm activating them more towards an action orientation to feelings rather than a self-talk because we're all wired into that. And social media beats that in us because you have to think about it. The, the, the uh, neurochemicals that exist in our head when we're strolling through social media and we're living a life that's dissatisfied mm-hmm. immediately creates a focus that leads to a negative self-talk that affect our feelings. Then we start saying, well, they, then we start blaming them for their success. You know, they're, they, well, they just had this or their daddy was this or whatever. And we make all those excuses because we never, we never do what's within ourselves. So I'm like, no, 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 uh-uh. we're going to go from, Hey, what's the focus and what actions do we need to take? Cause trust me, whatever that focus is, is not that big. It isn't that big. We can affect your feelings and then we just reverse it. Does that help? Oh yeah. That- I love that. Yeah, oh, that's that's so good, man. There's so much to unpack, and that I, goes back to what you were saying, Tyler. Every time we talk to you, Kevin, it's like you you're like, I'm going to give you the two minute principle on this. By the way, this contains two decades worth of content that it'll take to unpack why yeah. things are the way they are. Kevin, what do you see if you were to give a recommendation generally? Because most of our people who listen to us have a small business; they're in some way, shape, or form, or considering to be in a small business. What is your number one recommendation for anybody in business? I think the biggest thing that I tell people, and this goes back to positioning. So um, you you position yourself by being first at something, by being best at something or unique. When you're first, best, and you're unique, you stand out. And most of the time, if you, if you just drive home and be in the best version of you within the context of those three areas, you're going to get a pivot. That pivot's going to come in the form of an opportunity. It's going to come in form of a promotion. But the, the mistake that people make is they get that pivot. They get that opportunity, but then they try to redo everything they did before. Mm. When the reality is you got to reposition. You have to be first, best, and unique all over again at that level because every new level you go to always requires something new from you. And so we often are fighting for comfort when we should be fighting for discomfort, we should be looking for, you know, that thrash, that, that struggle, and we need to honor the struggle. So when you embrace the struggle of that new level of first, best, and unique, then you get another pivot and you get another pivot. And what life really is essentially is, is navigating a series of those pivots. Some people get stuck in a pivot and, and that's, I bump into people that are there. And like we talked about earlier, you know, here's, we got to get more action oriented to get the feelings in line. But at the same time, when you look at, you know, other organizations or companies, you know, they have other people coming after them. So if you're in this world of, you know, success level one, where you're perfecting and you're protecting and you're trying to scale within your smaller circle, your competitors are coming out of like, no, that, that's success level two. They're innovating around that. So if you look at like New York City taxi cab drivers, you're looking at Uber, you know, they're coming in at, at success level two. Mm-hmm. You know, they've created a pivot. Because they're solving a little bit of, a, of, of, of the, the fact that you're in your comfort zone there. You got your built-in, 
you know, ability to service and take care of everything that's in front of you. Why should I think about innovating? And all of a sudden someone innovates or, you know, Four Seasons, you know, and uh, Marriott, but then all of a sudden Airbnb rolls. Oh, they should have come up with Airbnb. Sure. You know, when you look at all the, you know, Netflix and, you know, in the movie industry, all those other kinds of things that are trying to hold on and, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, it becomes part of that. So I tell people that if you can navigate, you can position well. And you can strive to go through the struggle and the challenges that, that will go from each success level that you go to, you're going to be on a good path because you should always be, have a level of necessity that's forcing you to level up and learn in ways you've never had to. And Equius has gone through that. You've gone through a lot of iterations of Equius and your expansion and the things that you're doing, you know, there's obviously risks and leading mm-hmm. at distance is challenging in and of itself, but yet at the same time, the skills that you're gaining aren't even for what you're doing now. The skills that you're gaining are what for what you're doing next. Yeah. And that's the part people don't see. They don't see that part of it. This is just one step of how many more steps. And, and that's where I got to get people to dial in. And that's what I try to help people understand. I think it's amazing how you talk about stuff, Kevin, because we could ask somebody else that question and they would almost try to give us a, a prescription you do this, then this, then this, your teaching style, your speaking style is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. Mm. You're not telling everybody to go out and become a number one draft pick by following that guy's example and putting on a winter coat and boots and gloves. You're describing what he was willing to do. Right. Though if he had been a mid-level draft pick, you probably wouldn't be telling that story because it wouldn't have worked out well, but it's so great because so many self helps, so many coaches try and prescribe a model that if you do these things, you will succeed. And I appreciate because your teaching style is so much more, let me describe to you what other people have been willing to do to distinguish themselves, to be that unique first, best. Speaking of which, next month you're talking at the conference. Yeah. Grow or die. Grow or die. Which is, <laughs> you're getting a preview right here, kids. <laughs> and so that is something that you're talking about is when you stop going to the next, when you get stuck, is that death in that scenario? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it may not be like the kind of death that we would think of you know, driving and seeing roadkill on the side of the road kind of death. But uh, there are a lot of people who, you know, I, I, I remember uh, Miles Monroe telling this story about where all the most potential lives. And, uh, and he says it's in a graveyard. There are more unwritten books. There are more unwritten screenplays. There are more things in a graveyard. And I kept, I remember saying to myself, I don't want to be the walking dead. And I think there's a lot of walking dead out there. And I think what they, what we want to try to do at the conference is inspire people to uh, not just see the world differently, but to act in a way that not only impacts the business that they're in, but the world that they also live in. Because you got to make a difference. It's got to be more than just a pile of money. Um, it's whether it's in the lives of your employees and, or it's in, in the, the lives of your customers or your vendors or whatever that is, that you have an impact. And, and so we just want to make sure that we're clear on what that is because that brings life. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that's the key. I, I think that's the invisible. That's awesome. Well, if you, uh, listeners, if you want to see Kevin live, you want to get a chance to shake his hand uh, next month 
the GapCon, equus.law slash tickets for tickets for that. Kevin, thank you so much. You're welcome. For all of this. So on behalf of Ken and Tyler, this is Chris White. You've been listening to Basic Business Advice. Mm-hmm.